Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. I hope you've all been staying safe and dry with this week of typhoons. In this week's programme, I'm heading back down memory lane with two interviews conducted 11 to 12 years ago. Later in the programme, I take a wander with researcher Liz Chater, who lives in southern England, but has been instrumental in uncovering all sorts of information on the Armenian businessman from Calcutta, Sir Kachik Paul Chater, who founded some of Hong Kong's key companies and was the man behind much of the early reclamation. So that's an interview from 2009. But first, this is an interview from 2010, where I take a trip aboard the Star Ferry with actress Nancy Kwan, who famously starred with William Holden in the world of Susie Wong, making her the first Eurasian or Asian star in a leading role. Nancy was here 11 years ago to promote a documentary about her life made by director Brian Jameson of Red Wind Productions, which also focused on her relationship with her son, Bernie Pock, who tragically died at the age of 33 from AIDS. The documentary, To Whom It May Concern, Karshen's Journey, was awarded Best Feature Documentary by the American International Film Festival. In the world of Susie Wong, Nancy plays prostitute Susie Wong, a Wan Chai bar girl who meets artist Richard Lomax. She struggles to survive and also has the tragedy of losing her young child. Have a listen to her very first screen test before Nancy and I have a trip aboard the Star Ferry. Now look at me without turning your back. Uh, Miss Kwan, uh, how do you pronounce your name? Kwan. And your first name? Nancy. What nationality are you? I'm Eurasian. I'm half Chinese and half English. Are you? How old are you? I'm just 20 years old. That was a long time ago. You just said 50 years ago. <laughs> I still remember that. I was back in Hong Kong for the holidays from school, um, from ballet. I was at the Royal Ballet. And um, I went up to the studio to watch my favorite Chinese actresses testing for the role of the world of Susie Wong. Because Ray Stapp, the producer, uh, came to Hong Kong. He was doing this whole promotional tour, I guess, to promote the film that they were going to shoot, they were going to do, and shoot on location here in Hong Kong. So that's how I met Ray Stapp. I was watching these lovely actresses testing, and he said to me, do you want to do a screen test? I really didn't know what he was talking about. I said, what, what, what's that? He said, well, just sit there and I'll you know, ask you a few questions. And turn the camera on. I said, okay. And that's what we did. And then, like, a few... Just before I went back to school, I, I, I was due to go back to England. I get this letter, or my father gets this letter, and said, would we... Or would I like to come to Hollywood and do another screen test for the role and a few weeks later I signed a contract oh he put me under contract for six months to do this test and I was off to Hollywood now when you were filming uh, the world of Susie Wong when you came aboard the, the star ferry tell me about tell me about that shot he, he sees your ponytail or something like that it starts in stuff yeah I'm running down I think I was about to miss it and the, and the plank was about to go up and so I catch the ferry we sit here and um, then I'm standing by the window and then Bill Holden is sketching. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's with a sketch pad and he sees me and starts sketching. And then as he's sketching me, I notice it 
and then I walk away from him and I go to the window and look out the window and I did have a ponytail yes and then he comes to talk to me. I don't mean to be rude. No talk. You mean I don't talk or you no talk? I mean you no talk to me. Well, look, I'm not trying to pick you up. I just you want me to call officer? Well, won't you please allow? Now, your mother was Scottish, your father Chinese. In in the film, of course, as a you were in fact the first Eurasian actress to have a major Hollywood role. Yeah, I mean uh, they call us the pioneers in, 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 a, in a Hollywood film for Asian American actors. And yes, I was one of the first and um, I'm very proud of it. I think it's terrific. When you look at Hollywood today, do you think strides have been made in terms of for Asian actors or do you think there's a long way to go? No, I think there's still a long way to go for Asian actors in Hollywood. Um, I mean, here in Asia, you know, they develop their own roles for the actors. In Hollywood, unfortunately, for Asian actors, um, there's still not enough really good meaty roles in order to sustain a career. I mean, there are roles and things, but you need good roles, good parts um, to keep your career going. And so, unfortunately, not so. We're, we're, I still, I think, we're still a long way off. Sailor, you going in bar, Sailor? Well, I wasn't planning to. Would you like to take me inside, please? Sounds like a good idea. I was always, um, I always wondered why Caucasian actors were playing Chinese characters, especially the females. And whenever it was a, a kind of like a love story, it, it seemed that the um, that the female character, the Asian, had to die in the story. I thought, well, maybe this was a taboo subject. So all of these things kind of intrigued me. And as life went on, um, you know, I never lost sight of this. And um, I was always intrigued by what happened to Nancy's career after Flower Drum Song because when she had completed that film, um, God, she could have written her own meal ticket in Hollywood. She was a big, big star. But it didn't seem that the, the roles that would follow would ever again mirror the success of those first two movies. So I guess I was always um, you know, fascinated by what had happened to Nancy and the fact that when she uh, made The World of Susie Wong, she didn't know it at the time, but she was actually creating history. She was the very first Asian or Eurasian actress to be cast in a major Hollywood film. When the film was being made, the, the choice of the film based uh, uh, on the book by Richard Mason, um, I mean, you know, Susie Wong has an illegitimate child. She's in a cross-race relationship. Uh, was this all a bit racy for Hong Kong of the time? I'm sure it was racy for everyone. I mean, as they, everyone looks, uh, has a different viewpoint of this. But, um, yeah, I would think, uh, yes, I would think, well, for the Asians, yes, and for the, yes, for the British too, because as you see, it's a cross-cultural relationship and um, illegitimate child, prostitution, makes it all, all makes it all very interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> Good subject for a film. <laughs> Nancy Kwan was born in Hong Kong. Um, and she had spent her formative years here. Uh, who were her parents? Um, her parents were, um, her mother was a lady called Marquita Omari Scott. She was of Scottish, uh, like a beautiful blonde English girl, but of Scottish descent. And her father was Chinese. Um, 
who was affectionately known as Honky, Honky Kwan. And he had gone to the UK in the early 30s to study at uh, one of the universities, I believe Cambridge. He was studying to be an architect. And um, it was just by sheer chance that he was visiting a film set where Marquita had a bit role in a film. And they met. And I guess as the story goes, it was, I don't know whether it was love at first sight, but clearly there was an attraction. And that's where it began. And of course, you know, you can imagine when they got married in 1936, a beautiful young blonde English girl and a Chinese man. I I can't even begin to think what the discrimination uh, was that they would have faced. So... um, I, um, you know, I think they had a lot of difficulties with that, but obviously they were in love, they wanted to overcome it, their first son was born there, and then when they moved to Hong Kong in 1938, they faced a reverse form of discrimination, uh, where I think not only the British here in the, in Hong Kong, as the colony was then, but even the Chinese, you know, um, it just didn't work, so the marriage was destined uh, to failure, I think, and I think that may have played a major role when uh, I think Nancy's mother left the marriage when she was about two years old, just before the invasion of Hong Kong by the Japanese. So she was to grow up largely uh, through her formative years without um, without having her natural mother with her. When I was uh, talking to Brian earlier, he was saying about uh, the fact that you had a, a Scottish mum and yes. a Chinese father. Now, I also heard that uh, you, you were born here in 1940, that, that your father actually uh, spied for the British here yes. in Hong Kong during the war. Yes, he was working for the British intelligence, and, and so it was a very dangerous time for him and for the I have an older brother, and uh, so we had to be smuggled out of Hong Kong, which he did, so dressed up as a coolie, and uh, it's all in the documentary, and blackened our, darkened our faces, and put it in a basket, you know, and took us out of uh, Hong Kong to China. And during the time when he was in China, during the war, that's what he used to do, he used to pick up... Um, American servicemen or people shut down, you know, flying over China and shut down, and pick them up and then take them back to Kunming, where the t- Flying Tigers were based there. You were born in Hong Kong, and uh, you went to Marinol School? Uh, yes, I did. I went to Marinol School, uh, Marinol Convent School in, uh, in Kowloon Tong. Uh, have you been to visit it since? Uh, yes. Actually, as a matter of fact, when we shot the documentary, that's what I'm here for. To whom it may concern, Kashian's journey and uh, Salon film, 50 years anniversary for Susie Wong. We um, uh, we sh- shot part of the uh, film or the documentary. We went back to Marinol and filmed it with the little girls and the students, and well, it was wonderful. So. We met, we talked, and ultimately I started to put my vision on the table for Nancy. And But again, I wanted to tell her personal story, which is the story of um, the relationship with her son that she was to lose. And um, it took me probably about a year and a half to be able to win Nancy's trust to be able to tell that story intelligently and I'll always remember the day she called me up and she said okay I'll do it and um, so we went to Cambodia I wanted to find a very spiritual place where she would have some sort of a comfort to be able to talk freely about it or to at least open up and talk now and whilst it wasn't easy but we accomplished it and in that regard I think she's a very very courageous um, lady I really do. 
as well as uh, obviously being here with Brian Jameson and, and your husband Norbert, um, you're here to promote your yes. biography. Yeah, No, no, it's a documentary, docudrama actually, uh, called To Whom It May Concern, Kashan's Journey. Um, it's about Asian filmmakers, Asian American filmmakers in Hollywood and the centerpiece is my life story. So that's what we're doing here to promote the documentary and it's going to be at the film festival in Hong Kong. The documentary drama, what, what locations other than Hong Kong were you in? Um, we shot, the first time we, oh, we went to Siem uh, Reap in Cambodia, Angkor Wat, because there were, there's a very kind of a um, sensitive it, uh, point in the documentary when I talk about my son, and I just talked about it, and, and I managed to uh, be able to speak about it. Yeah, there's a very personal tragedy. Um, your, your son died at 33. Yes, he died of AIDS at 33, you know, um, died of complications of AIDS at 33. And so I really, I didn't think I, I really didn't think I would be able to talk because I'm very private as a person and I, even our friends didn't know, our good friends didn't know because they, we didn't want to worry them and everything else. So in order just to talk about it for the world to know, it's, it's a whole different, you know, I'm not doing a, a role in a film. I'm I'm talking about my own life, so it was a challenging time, let's put it that way. Do you think that Susie Wong helped or hindered your career as it developed? hard to say for me because I mean I happened that was my first film and it was very successful so I went started at the top and when you start at the top I guess you, you have nowhere to go but come down <laughs> but it did help me in that way that when the better roles came along for Asians at that time that I got the roles because of that but it might have hindered me because I was so well known for playing this role that they maybe in another role that they would look for someone not you know not identifying with the film already were there a lot of sets that were created in the studio or were you in mostly no. in real buildings the interiors of the bar for example was done in England and they used to have like a hills when we did the flood scene the flood and everything the rain that was done we took the exteriors from here because there was all these re refugees living on shacks on the hill and then they uh, built the set in England so they could control the rain and the water and the floods and everything else so the bar the interior bar and that huge set was uh, at Elstree I think in England yes because of course there's a typhoon that strikes. Yeah, this yeah, the big flood typhoon, and then my my child in the film dies. You know, so it's life imitating art and art imitating life. When I draw a face, I remember it. Sure looks like it. To Americans, all Chinese look alike. For goodness' sake. That's not me. My name's Susie Wong. Actress Nancy Kwan there and documentary maker Brian Jameson talking about the documentary made by Brian about her life and the tragedy of losing her son. When I met Nancy in 2010, she was 70 at the time and looked amazing as she came floating down the escalator in a pair of high wedge heels. 
So when I first suggested going on the Star Ferry, I wondered what she would say. But she was game. And on to the second topic for today. Liz Chater lives in southern England. Her heritage is part Armenian through her father's side, and she's carried out some outstanding history research for the Armenian community internationally. During this, Liz began to unearth all sorts of unknown history about one of the key founders of modern Hong Kong, Sir Kachik Paul Chater, who came here as a teenager from Calcutta and would go on to help found several of the city's key companies, including Hong Kong Land and Kowloon Wharf. He also had a vision for Kowloon and was key on expanding Hong Kong's reclamation. When Liz came to Hong Kong in 2009, Hong Kong Land was unveiling a bus to him. But while there was a road and garden named after Cheetah, his story needs a bit of a wider audience. I met up with Liz in Statue Square to talk about the life of Sir Kachik Paul Cheetah. Sir Paul was born in 1846 and came to Hong Kong in 1864. He died here in 1926. I've been very, very lucky, really, to be invited here by Hong Kong Land because they have recently unveiled a wonderful bronze bust of Sir Paul Chater, and also、uh, a very beautiful wall plaque, relief plaque, also of Sir Paul, in recognition of everything that、uh, he has done—not just for Hong Kong Land, but for Hong Kong itself. He. Was involved with every major company in Hong Kong、uh, during his lifetime,、uh, but there was very little physical recognition of his achievements, and so、um, Hong Kong Land, in their wonderful wisdom, I think, decided that、uh, it would be a good idea to、uh, to do this bus, and so they have. Now we're here in Statue Square. Now there was actual talk when. Sir Paul Chater died in 1926. There was going to be a statue then. I mean, it's taken another 90 years, but there we go. But nothing happened with the statue idea. No, unfortunately,、uh, nothing did come of it. Although after he died, there was an awful lot of、um, discussion and comment, particularly in the local Hong Kong papers at the time. And there was a, 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 quite a campaign to actually have a statue of Sir Paul Chater、um, located actually over in Kowloon, which was. His initial place of development. He saw that beautiful, empty. I know you find that very difficult to believe now,、uh, but it was a very beautiful and empty area.、Um, and he built his first home there. And so it would have been a really fitting place to have had a statue. But for whatever the reasons, they couldn't agree to size, location, costing, or, or maybe it just fizzled out. You know, I think there was a committee, a, a statue committee, put together, but I don't think they ever agreed on anything. And so, you know, we find ourselves 90 years on without anything until today. So they've now got this bronze、uh, sculpture. But go back to, you know, he built this bungalow. Well, it was called a bungalow on Kowloon. It was rather a big bungalow. Oh my goodness! It was very palatial. It was very grand.、Um, it was his first major. Building for himself for his own personal use.、Um, he actually only used it、uh, at weekends because he had、um, a townhouse here in Cane Road at the time. At that point, Marble Hall, his larger house, wasn't built, wasn't even thought about.、Um, so he he basically did what well, we commonly and modern in terms call now commuting.、Um, he would work in Cane Road during the week and then go to Kowloon into his bungalow. Uh, at weekends、um, and entertain there, and there was a very—I、um, mean, he entertained many, many people there. But I, 
uh, know of one instance where the King of Hawaii was um, on a world tour and he, he stopped over in, in Hong Kong and uh, Sir Paul entertained the King and his entourage and obviously the great and the good of uh, the Hong Kong community at the time. Um, and I think he sat something like 150 people in his dining room in his bungalow. So wasn't a small bungalow. <laughs> so as well as Hong Kong Land, which he co-founded with James Johnson Keswick back in 1889, so that's celebrating its 120th anniversary this year, what would you have said were the other major achievements of Sir Catrick Paul Chater? The dairy company that he was uh, fairly major in as a, as a director, um, the Star Ferry, he had uh, interests in, um, there was the Peak Tram Company, uh, the Hong Kong Kowloon and uh, Wharf Company. Um, there were several uh, major companies. I mean, people who wanted to start businesses wanted Chater on their board of directors. So made every major company in Hong Kong at the time he was associated with at some point. Land reclamation was very important to him. Um, you know, we're sitting here today in, in Statute Square, which originally, of course, would have been the sea. Um, and he was tremendously instrumental. And really, it was his brainchild to uh, do the 56-acre reclamation um, that Hong Kong is pretty well based on today. I'm sat in Statue Square on a lovely sunny hot day with Liz Chater who's come over from England. She's been attending the 120th anniversary of Hong Kong land and the unveiling of a bust of a distant ancestor of hers, Sir Katchik Paul Chater. There's a bronze bust now on the ground floor of Chater House, so go and have a look. Um, the reason that we are in Statue Square, in fact, is because... That was another of his ideas, wasn't it? Yes, it was actually. Yes, um, I mean, well, I'm, I'm glad that we're sitting here beside this lovely cool water. Actually, if it was a bit deep, I'd want to jump in. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, Statute Square was his idea. Um, it, it came to him after the unveiling of the Queen Victoria statue in 1896. He obviously muted it or around in his head for a while. Um, because a few years later, at the unveiling of another statue in 1907, he revealed for the first time actually how that concept came about. If I could just quote actually uh, just uh, what, what Sir Paul said as to how he, he thought of Statute Square, he said, On that occasion of the unveiling of the Queen Victoria statue in 1896, the idea occurred to me of endeavouring to further embellish the square of statues by our, of our reigning sovereign, who may God long preserve, our beloved Queen Alexandra, their Royal Highnesses, the Prince and Princess of Wales. When all these statues are erected in this colony, the first acquisition of our late Queen's reign and the first to perpetuate her beloved name will possess within its city of Victoria a square of which it may justly be proud. Well, I think I'm justly proud today, actually. <laughs> We're sat next to the, well, Legislative Council, soon to be not any longer the Legislative Council, and uh, also over here we've got uh, a statue of Sir Thomas Jackson. Who was Thomas Jackson? He was the, the manager of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. And um, this is obviously the only statue left here in Statute Square, which personally I think is a terrible shame, and I'm sure actually a lot of people in Hong Kong do as well. The Sir Thomas Jackson statue was actually unveiled in February 1906, um, and in total there were 
12 statues, 10 of which stood here in Statute Square and two in other locations. Um, and uh, in fact, there's very little uh, pictorial reference now to show those uh, statues in their positions at the various times that they were unveiled. But I do fortunately, as part of my research, uh, have pictures of every single one of those statues. Well, it's very interesting to hear about Sir Paul Chater. You've done a heck of a lot of uh, research. And uh, I mean, sometimes it's quite difficult because papers are sometimes hidden in archives or a bit difficult to access. But you have recently come across quite a bit of a mystery as to where part of the Chater collection could have gone. I have actually, yes. Um, during the course of my research, I've come across uh, some papers that so far have not come out into the public domain, um, indicating that not all of his Chinese porcelain was lost at sea. So explain to me, Liz, the um, basically the Chater collection. I mean, I've seen some of those paintings at the Hong Kong Museum of Art. So he had paintings, he had porcelain. Yeah. Um, this was a lot of this was at his home in Marble Hall. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, you know, some of, some of your listeners will, will know, of course, about the Chater Collection, which is a, a large selection of paintings that he had at Marble Hall, uh, which he gave to the government uh, as a legacy uh, in his will after he died. He also had a very substantial collection of Japanese bisonware, and um, which was also catalogued as part of the Chater collection in a book called Bisonware by J James Orange, as was the, the, the paintings as well. But what wasn't catalogued was his Chinese collection that he held in his home in Marble Hall. And as I understand it, some of that porcelain was taken by the Japanese during World War II, uh, and it was on a ship that ultimately sunk in the South China Sea, and it was thought that that China was all missing. But I found evidence to suggest that, in fact, that uh, 30 boxes of some of the Chater collection were found actually in one of his warehouses in Kowloon. Um, six of those boxes contained paintings, and the remainder were of Chinese porcelain. And um, those 30 boxes were actually classed as part of his residue estate, which meant it ultimately didn't go to the government of Hong Kong. It went to the Armenian church in Calcutta. So Sir Paul Chater, who died in 1926, this is when his estate is being sorted out. Yeah. And uh, so you actually think that some of this stuff, <laughs> those 30 boxes of six boxes of paintings, 24 boxes of probably porcelain, yes. actually headed off to India. I, I'm, I actually have documentary evidence to say that the, um, the, the trustee of Bengal, who was working very closely with the executors of Chater's Will at the time, found these boxes and it was agreed by all parties concerned that they were part of his residue estate and the trustee of, of Bengal then arranged to have them shipped over to India, specifically back to Calcutta, and they were then sent to auction. I'm talking with Liz Chater, we're actually sat here in Statue Square in Central. Now, Liz, should we take a wander over to Chater Garden? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. Let's do that. Actually, I wanted to come here because I wanted to show you the uh, the reclamation foundation stone that was laid in 1890 by the Duke of Connaught. Um, the Duke of Connaught uh, 
arrived in Hong Kong in a very splendid fashion with pomp and circumstance and bands playing on uh, Monday the 31st of March 1890. He was met at the pier um, by a reception committee which included Sir Paul Chater. And then uh, a couple of days later on the 2nd of April, the uh, foundation stone for the land reclamation that was instigated by Sir Paul uh, was laid. And um, if I can just give you a, a quick quote here, um, the, the acting governor at the time, Mr. Fleming, said that the initial work was due to the Honourable Mr. C.P. Chater, whose energy, whose enterprise and whose industry in everything connected with the welfare of this island have, to no little extent, brought the colony to that prosperous condition in which it is today. My thanks to Nancy Kwan, Brian Jameson and Liz Chater, talking there in interviews from 2009 and 2010. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.